Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Life is full of awesome what-ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at UH1.com. To the other hand, a podcast that tries to do something different. A discussion between Jim Power and Chris Johns about the issues of the day, political developments, economics, finance, and anything else that takes our interest. How are we different? We hope our discussions speak for themselves. You are most welcome to our podcast. Hello, everyone. Today, Jim and I are going to be talking about some of the developments over the past couple of days with respect to economies on both sides of the Irish Sea. We've had some important exchequer returns, the details of government taxation and spending published in Ireland. We've also had Irish unemployment. The big news in the UK, of course, has been Rishi Sunak's 16th fiscal announcement since the pandemic started. In a way, we can describe it as his 16th budget, but this was the big one with tons of interesting stuff in it. And also we're going to have a few words towards the end about something called GNI Star, which might sound very geeky, very esoteric, but is incredibly important in the context of all of the things that we've just discussed, actually. And Jim, in particular, is going to have a few words to say about that. And we'll both talk about the way in which all of those things are joined up. In a way, we could call this particular podcast Joining the Dots. All of these seemingly disparate events, announcements and news are very, very connected. So we're going to start today with a brief discussion, quick fire, on Irish unemployment that was out this week. I personally found this somewhat remarkable in the sense that they were unremarked upon by great swathes of the media. Now, obviously, there's a lot going on elsewhere, um, and I suppose it's understandable how other headlines take precedent. But in more normal times, a 24.8% headline unemployment rate would attract an awful lot of attention. 56.8% youth unemployment. Now, that obviously encompasses pandemic unemployment numbers and employment wage subsidy schemes. And I'll hand over to Jim, who perhaps will just spend a minute or two elaborating on all of that and telling us what he thinks of these numbers and what they might mean going forward. Yeah, Chris, the unemployment numbers were quite dramatic in many ways. Um, okay, the, the headline number was that we had 140,800 people unemployed 
which represents an increase of 15,600 on the same month last year. Okay, that gives an unemployment rate of 5.8%. But that, those numbers don't take account of those people who are in receipt of the pandemic unemployment payment or who are being subsidized through the employer wage subsidy scheme. And if you, and the reason why they're not included is because they are still um, officially employed as such. But the reality, of course, is that they are out of work in most cases. And in fact, on the 1st of March, there was 469,000 people in receipt of the pandemic unemployment payment. So if you adjust the unemployment numbers for COVID-19, we find that at the end of February, we had an unemployment rate of 24.8%. And uh, that is absolutely dramatic stuff. But there's a sort of a, a relaxed view about it in the sense that uh, there's a belief that once we come out of COVID, once the economy starts to reopen again, that the majority of those people will be reemployed. And I think the challenge is to make sure that that actually is the case, that those people are reemployed. And that's why I believe the government support schemes for businesses particularly um, really need to be kept in place for as long as possible. Uh, the 469,000 people on the pandemic unemployment payment is costing the exchequer over 140 million euro per annum. So, I'm sorry, per week. So there's a very extensive cost involved, has significant implications for the public finances. And those implications were very much borne out by the second issue which we're going to discuss today, which is the exchequer returns for uh, the first two months of the year. Uh, those returns show that we ran a deficit of 721 million. That represents a turnaround of over 2 billion compared to last year. And um, it's, it's clear, there's a few things clear from it. One is that the income tax take is holding up very well because those higher earners in our progressive tax system continue to earn despite COVID and they're continuing to pay a lot of tax. Uh, the other issue that stands out very clearly is the pressure on public expenditure and social protection expenditure, which includes the pandemic unemployment payment. That was up by 51.3% in the first two months of the year compared to the same period last year. So very clear that the labour market data is feeding through very significantly into the public finances and certainly building up uh, a very big budget deficit this year and also a significant level of government debt. So we are going to be left with a very, very negative legacy from what's going on on the labour market and elsewhere in the economy at the moment. Almost as an aside, Jim, I was intrigued by your remark there that the progressive nature of the Irish tax system is helping and that the higher earners, those who uh, have been relatively unaffected by the pandemic, um, are making a tax contribution proportionate to their incomes, which is a definition of progressivity when it comes to tax, at least. It, it says a couple of things, not least that the economic consequences, particularly in terms of the labour market, have been felt very unevenly by this. And that speaks to the the exchequer returns connects back to the unemployment discussion and those youth unemployment numbers in particular. 
But of course, we know the sectors that have been hardest hit by this have typically been the lowest paid. Um, and that's what that is one of the ways in which it's all all connected. But progressivity is one of those controversial things in in Ireland that over the years I've been amazed that no progress has been made in terms of, oh, let's call it public education, in that we still see an awful lot of people, particularly on the left of the, of the spectrum, denying that Ireland has a progressive tax system. The Irish Times this week, for example, published a letter um, about one of my articles that I wrote last week, um, in which uh, I was commended by the letter writer, who got my name wrong, which is a, a familiar enough thing, um, uh, commended my article for pointing out that we may not be able to borrow in this way forever and that things have to change. And then the letter went on to say that what needs to change is that we need to adopt a progressive tax system. And it's about time Ireland has one. So do you think this myth of the lack of progressivity in the Irish tax system could ever be slain when the, the, the data are the data, the numbers are the numbers, and we have, in that almost tired cliche for us at least, one of the most progressive tax systems in the OECD? The, the, the official statistics show that we, and the OECD has published this data showing that we are one of the most progressive tax systems in the OECD area. Um, un unfortunately, it does not feed into the populist political narrative. Uh, I remember during the whole water charge debate, those people who were opposed to water charges, of which I have to say I was a huge supporter because I do believe we need to pay for water. We do need to invest in the water infrastructure. But that's an aside. But those people who were opposed to water charges saying that we should pay for the water through a progressive tax system, the implication being that we don't have one. Uh, we have, and it, we can repeat it as often as we want to, we have one of the most progressive tax systems in the world, but because it does not feed into the popular populist political narrative, uh, well, then uh, it's a case of not letting the facts get in the way of a good story. And I think the experience of the last 12 months in relation to the income tax take, despite what was happening in the labour market, uh, is a really, really clear indication of just how progressive the tax system is. And I suppose the consolation we can have out of all of this is that policymakers, which really are the ones that matter, at least the current complexion of policymakers, do believe and do recognise we have a progressive tax system and they behave accordingly. Of course, the nightmare scenario, I believe, from an economic perspective, would be that if we did get a change of government, if we did get the emergence of popular populist politics in government, that they could actually start to even increase the progressivity of the tax system even more. And I think that would really destroy effort initiative in the economy and seriously, seriously make people question, particularly talented people, do they really want to stay in this country and be taxed off the face of the earth? So it's, it's, it's an important debate, but I think it's incumbent on those of us who understand the progressive nature of the tax system to continue to beat that drum. It's a very important message to get out there. It, it's an interesting one, and I'm fascinated by the nature of the public debate and the way in which facts, as you say, don't get in the way of a good story. We're very familiar with that in a whole range of contexts. Um, but on this one, this one has been rumbling on for, it seems to me, decades. And why 
incumbent governments, successive incumbent Irish governments, not been able to wrest control of this particular narrative away from those who spun it? We're not going to answer that today, but it's, it's, it's a fascinating question because the facts should speak for themselves, and yet it, uh, uh, this myth continues to, to not just linger, it, it tends to dominate popular discourse, as you say. If I, if I could say, Chris, that anybody who doubts this should just go onto the Revenue Commissioner's um, website and look up the statistics part of that, and it shows very, very clearly where the bulk of income tax comes from. I guess the people who do spin this narrative for political purposes would chuckle at that, Jim, and say that most people would rather saw their leg off with a blunt penknife than go into the revenue statistics website. Um, it's only the, the likes of you and I that, that uh, relish that kind, that kind of prospect. Uh, one of the reasons why I think the, um, the narrative is allowed to persist is that I think uh, our modern crop of politicians, not just in Ireland, but in, in many jurisdictions, is just so poor at A, identifying what the, the current narrative is and then constructing a strategy, a political strategy, to effectively counter it um, all over the place. The rise of populism generally and all aspects to do with that are examples in mind. But this progressivity myth about the tax system or its lack of progressivity myth um, is, is the one that uh, it, it is really puzzling. I actually recently had a debate on social media. Social media is great because it just makes you laugh sometimes as well as cry um, in terms of the abuse that one might get. But um, I had several comments after that article that I wrote saying that um, one of the reasons why we're just so hopeless at constructing uh, proper narratives as opposed to myths is that the state broadcaster in Ireland is, is effectively controlled by a particular party that currently is on the far left of the political spectrum. Um, but as I say, I chuckle at these sorts Indeed. of things. Indeed. Um, that, I think, takes us nicely into another uh, aspect of fiscal politics, economics and finance. And the big event in the UK, for those of us that are in the UK at the moment anyway, was Rishi Sunak's budget on Wednesday. Um, this, as I mentioned earlier on, was his 16th fiscal statement Um whilst in office, and he's only been in office for a year. Not quite his 16th budget, but um, I think a, a tabloid headline would put it in that way. Um, most budgets these days aren't real headline makers. Um, we, we, we try to pretend that they are, but they're not the big bang events that they used to be in the past, particularly when we had fiscal crises and all the rest of it, again, on both sides of the Irish Sea. But this one was a big deal. It really, really was um, the most interesting budget that I can remember in a UK context for years. Um, from a very top-down perspective, it signalled that Thatcherism as, a, as an economic philosophy, as an economic creed, at least when expressed in terms of trying to shrink the state, trying to lower taxes, is dead and buried. It, it, this was a tax and spend budget. This was about spending loads of money now and increasing taxes later. So it was a massive, massive change. Uh, the second thing I'd say about it was that it was performative. It was economics as um, a lowbrow soap opera um, in that so much was left unsaid. There was high drama. There was subplot line. There were all sorts of things going on. But the one thing that it wasn't 
was what Sunak claimed that it was, which which was honest. And I'll come to that in a minute. Um, but the numbers were just whole. You could go into this in all sorts of levels of detail, and I won't go into it too much. But just to give you a flavour of the kind of numbers, he announced an extra, and I put the word extra in inverted commas, sixty-five billion pounds sterling over the next two years, critically mostly in the form of job and business supports. Um, there wasn't very much in that extra for actually stimulating the economy. Sunak did a little rinky-dink with respect to something called investment allowances, the amount of money that businesses are allowed to offset against tax for capital spending. Even that wasn't the big deal that the headlines suggested because it applied only to essentially manufacturing industry and not to where the real economy is, which is in the service sector. So uh, the start of the usual budgetary smoke and mirrors thing where the headlines um, are not supported by, by the detail. The tax bill or the total bill, rather, the spending and tax bill for the pandemic as a whole, is now currently estimated, and these numbers will change, the total bill for the pandemic is estimated at £407 billion sterling. We're talking serious money here, Jim, and it's only really comparable in fiscal terms to the two world wars of of the 20th century. Um, COVID-19 is... The supports are, are, are going to be rolled over and extended to September, which from the perspective of the pandemic is curious because Johnson has previously announced that the pandemic in the UK is going to be all over with a fair wind, contingent on several tests, of course, but by June the 21st. But the, but the pandemic supports are in place, most of them anyway, until the end of September. Debt-GDP. A key ratio, and we'll talk a little bit more about how this connects to what we have been talking about and what we will talk about in a, in, in a moment, um, rises close to 100% of GDP, something that uh, during the financial crisis, you might remember that the um, famous professor Ken Rogoff warned us that any, any economy that gets to 100% or in excess of that is, is storing up huge trouble for, his, for himself. I was intrigued to hear him on British radio the other day saying that was only a rule of thumb and that when you're in wartime and he was explicit about this the pandemic is the economic equivalent of a war don't worry about those rules of thumb Mr Fiscal Orthodoxy himself somewhat recanting or at least changing his tune with respect to the economic consequences of the of of the pandemic the key thing for me about the budget or perhaps one of the key things was the way in which it didn't contain anything for growth. We talked about the exchequer returns and how much the Irish economy is having to borrow. We're talking about huge borrowing numbers in the UK. And the the best way an economist would say to deal with all of this, your troublesome GDP, debt GDP ratios, is to grow your way out of it. And there was nothing in the budget, in my opinion, that said, this is my strategy for growth. With one possible exception. And that is, I think, buried within this budget was an explicit assumption that once the vaccination program has succeeded in the way that we all hope that it will, the growth that will be unleashed from that will be sufficient to get us out of trouble. That said, he still thinks the economy, at least on the the forecast numbers that he presented yesterday, by the middle of the decade will be 3% smaller than it would otherwise have been. So there is a permanent scarring effect from the pandemic. 
The second thing I'd say about it is, is that all of the numbers that were presented that are taken on face value by the media, analysed to death by people like us, are all going to be wrong. We know that these forecast GDP numbers, these forecast borrowing, taxation spending numbers are not going to happen in the way that were printed yesterday. They're heavily conditional on how the economy grows going forward. And they're going to be very different to the ones that was presented yesterday. If I was a Chancellor of the Exchequer or a Minister for Finance, I would have stood up yesterday and said, I don't know what's going to happen. I'm going to present a central case here around which there are error bands that are huge. But what I hope is that growth is going to get us out of trouble on this one. And what I'm going to do to try and encourage growth is A, B, C, D. He didn't do any of that. He presented all these central forecasts and promised to raise corporation tax, which I know is particularly of interest to you, Jim, and, and our Irish audience, and to um, implicitly raise personal taxes, but not yet. So it was Augustinian in um, Lord make me virtuous, but not not quite yet. So I think it was dishonest in the sense that it really focused on performance rather than hard analysis and the absence of a growth strategy other than a bet that once un, un released from the pandemic, the economy will rebound of its own accord. I think that was a gross dereliction of a Chancellor of the Exchequer's duty. But it stands in huge contrast, huge contrast to what's happening on the other side of the Atlantic, where, of course, in America, there is this debate about whether the economy needs a, stim a post-pandemic stimulus or not. And Joe Biden, in particular, thinks that it does. But the British have answered that question with an emphatic no. Our economy does not need a stimulus. What do you think of that, Jim? Uh, I think, Chris, you're being a little bit harsh on the Chancellor in, in some respects. Uh, clearly, the strategy in the underlying the budget was based on a few things. One was the Office for Budget, Responsib budget Responsibility, the OBR's prediction that the economy would reachieve pre-COVID levels later this year. I think that was an important underlying factor and certainly um, gave them some. That's growth, not levels. There's still a gap. Yeah, but, but sorry, the, he, was, he was basically saying that the, the most of the damage from COVID-19, you know, in growth terms would have been rectified um, later this year. So it was a reasonably upbeat assessment of the UK economy. And that set the scene for what he delivered yesterday. Um, basically, I would interpret it as doing whatever needs to be done in the short term to inject as much stimulus as possible in. And, I, and then in the slightly longer term, through a corporation tax rate increase, through the, fee, the freezing of income tax credits, um, there was some attempt going to be made along with economic growth facilitating the process to try and rein back in the public finances again. I think that was one important element of it. The second important element was the fact that the business supports in place um, are very aggressive, particularly compared to what we have in this country. And SUNAC is guaranteeing basically that they will be kept in place as long as it takes. And the furlough scheme, for example, has been pushed out to the end of September. The commercial rates waiver has been pushed out. And businesses, small businesses in the most affected sectors are going to get a lot of commercial rates relief to varying degrees over the next 12 months of the end of uh, the current fiscal year, which is a year down the road. So 
in, in many ways, I think it was a recognition of the reality about what the economy needs at this point in time. Um, I think an interesting aspect of it was that this was the first budget um, introduced with Britain out formally outside of the European Union. And um, the question is, all of the promises that were made by Boris and his people in, in the run-up to Brexit about, you know, making the UK economy a better place, we, we have to ask the question, was there anything in the budget yesterday that actually starts that process of building back better, um, to, to use a term from the United States? And the focus on research and development, and okay, you caveat that by saying it's mainly in the manufacturing area, but it's starting to address some of those structural challenges. Yeah, I think I think it's marginal, that uh, investment allowance thing that they, they he introduced yesterday. Uh, the real politic of the post-Brexit damage that is being done to the UK economy, it's being buried by the pandemic. And Johnson, in a sort of macabre way, uh, has been allowed to get away with the economic damage or at least to hide it behind the damage that's being caused by the pandemic. And it's all sort of melding into one in the eyes of the electorate. And you can see that in the ways in which Johnson's opinion poll rating has gone through the roof again. Um, the British public have seemed willing to forgive the uh, appalling um, death rate of the pandemic through the course of last year and applaud the success of the vaccination programme. That is what it is. Um, so... Um, Another great omission from the budget, as well as the omission of a growth strategy, you and I obviously have a disagreement about that, um, is the, the absence of a green strategy. Johnson in the past has made a huge amount of um, building back better, but also building back green. And the environment barely got a mention, along with Brexit, not mentioned in, in the budget yesterday. So, so two huge omissions there. And um, politically, the other thing that the uh, pandemic, post-Brexit thing all melding into one is done is that Keir Starmer, the leader of the opposition, has become invisible. Um, it's the most extraordinary uh, thing, um, aspect of the British political landscape at the moment. But the whole fiscal discussion in, in the, the UK uh, obviously rests on a lot of complicated arithmetic and budgetary analysis to do with the sustainability of debt and the way in which we normally express that is in terms of debt-GDP ratios. And the final thing that I wanted to actually get you to talk about today, Jim, was uh, the way in which, uh, without going into it in too much detail, the way in which we measure the economy and how difficult that is at the moment for Ireland. Paul Krugman, the Nobel Prize-winning economist, famously coined the somewhat pejorative term leprechaun economics to describe Irish national accounting. And I know that the next governor of the Irish Central Bank has recently written a paper on a new concept. Perhaps you might talk us through some aspects of that. OK, before I do that, Chris, I'd just like to go back on a couple of points. One was um, my comment about the Office for Budget Responsibility. Um, they, were, they are forecasting that by mid-2022, the level of GDP would be back at pre-COVID levels. So that certainly fed into what Shunak did yesterday. The second point has an Irish resonance, and that is the fact that the corporation tax rate is going to be increased from 19 to 25% for companies with turnover um, above 50,000 per annum. Um, that's interesting because 
in the run-up to Brexit, there was a lot of fear being expressed on in this side of the water that Britain could pursue Singapore on Thames approach to corporate taxes, caught him aggressively to try and encourage foreign direct investment and set Britain up as a much bigger competitor for Ireland on the FDI front. So I think the Irish authorities will take a lot of solace out of the fact that UK corporation tax is going in the opposite direction for obvious reasons. Um, however, on the slight downside for Ireland, I think with the US corporation tax rate possibly going to be increased by Biden, with the UK rate certainly going up as announced yesterday, this will cast further attention on Ireland's corporation tax structure. And um, so in, in that way, it certainly won't help um, our fight to keep our corporation tax rate at 12.5%. In relation to the measurement of the economy, um, the standard international metric is gross domestic product, which is the total value of goods and services produced in an economy in a given time period. And another way of analyzing gross domestic product is to express it uh, per head of population or per capita. So you basically get the GDP and divide the population into it. And on that metric, Ireland is now deemed to be the second highest in the European Union, second only to the very artificial Luxembourg economy. Okay, so that's a very good political headline for the powers that be. But what Patrick Honahan has done, and there was nothing very new in the paper he presented, because I think any of us who analyse the Irish economy would recognise how grossly distorted GDP is in an Irish context. Uh, back in July 2016, I was at the quarterly press briefing that the CSO holds when it's going to announce the quarterly national accounts. And before they start talking about the quarter, they said, oh, by the way, we have revised our GDP growth numbers for 2015 from over 6% initially reported to over 26%. And that was one of the most dramatic um, events in an economic sense that I've ever witnessed. There was total shock around the room. Within minutes, Paul Krugman tweeted about leprechaun economics. And the CSO was reporting um, in a statistically correct manner, Irish GDP. But what happened in 2015, we saw a significant inflow of intellectual property assets into the country um, that have to become part of GDP, but they seriously distort GDP and have continued to do so since then. Um, and then what Patrick Conahan has tried to do is try to adjust for that. He's adjusted for the high price levels in Ireland relative to other countries. Um, he has looked at the the role of aircraft leasing and how the depreciation of aircraft assets actually distort our GDP, and also has looked at multinational corporations who have re-domiciled their headquarters into Ireland. So he has tried to strip all of that stuff out, come up with a real measure of economic activity. And as I say, there was nothing terribly new because after the 2015 GDP debacle, the CSO over the last couple of years has developed um, a measure of economic activity, which they describe as stripping out the effects of globalization. So all of that stuff I mentioned, it tries to strip that out. 
And in 2019, our GDP was 356 billion. And this new measure of economic activity called gross national income star, GNI star, which has no international resonance, but domestically, it's a good way for us to understand what's happening in the economy. That stood at 213.7 billion. So 40% lower than GDP. And where and that is definitely a much more realistic assessment of the economy we live in. It is likely that in 2020, GDP will have increased by about 3%, making Ireland the only country in the European Union to deliver positive growth last year. However, if you look at the GNI star measure, it is likely that the economy will have contracted by 6 to 7%. And I think that's the economy that most of us who live here can certainly relate to. One other point I will make before I hand back to you, Chris, is that where this really matters is um, GDP is the international metric, okay? When you are talking about a country's budget deficit or a country's outstanding level of debt, they are expressed as a percentage of GDP. And in Ireland's case, the debt to GDP ratio at the end of 2020, 62.6%, rising to 66.6% by the end of this year. And in terms of Ken Rogoff's sort of analysis about sustainable debt levels, Ireland looks in a very, very comfortable position because the average EU debt to GDP ratio at the end of last year would have been over 100%, close to 100%. However, if you express that debt, as you should do in this country, as a percentage of GNI star, it shows the real burden of debt. 107.8% at the end of 2020, expected to rise to 114.7% by the end of this year. So that gives us um, a better picture of the real debt situation here. So I think for anybody analyzing the Irish economy, it is really important to understand the distortions that are um, caused by the way in which GDP is measured. My only response to that, because you've actually covered everything that I was going to ask you about, uh, is if we express our deficits and debt, all that stuff we were talking about with the exchequer returns, um, as a percentage of GNI star rather than GDP, do you think we have a sustainable or an unsustainable situation going forward? I think we have a dangerously high level of debt. And for a small open economy that is so dependent on international confidence in the country and international investment and so on, it does create a vulnerability. I think there's no doubt about that. And that vulnerability, and I know we're talking about radically different times, but that vulnerability was really came to the surface when the IMF had to step in back in 2011 to bail us out for three years, basically, because the international market stopped lending to us. So what a high debt level. Uh, there's, I suppose there's two problems with a high debt level. One is the debt servicing costs. And because bond yields are so low, uh, that's not an issue for Ireland. It would become an issue if the cost of our debt started to rise over the coming years. Um, but the second issue then is that if international markets lost confidence in the country again, you know, how you finance th that sort of borrowing. Uh, but I would certainly put my hand up and say that there is no choice, that it has been absolutely essential 
that we run the sorts of deficits we've been running in 2020 and 2021. Uh, but we do need to ensure that once growth comes back on track, that we use that growth to get our the, the burden of debt down again into a, a safer and more manageable position. And I think that ties everything together that we've been talking about today, because if we are going to get those unemployment rates down, some of which are extremely scary, um, we're going to have to get economic growth. We can have a discussion about where it's going to come from, but I would argue at least that it has to come in part, at least American style, Biden style rather than Sunak style, with help from the government and help from fiscal stimulus. And notwithstanding those high debt ratios, um, which I think the point you make is very well made, is that we really wouldn't prefer to be starting here, but this is where we are. And so we have to actually take that risk of being on the side of stimulus rather than restraint in the way that Sunak is. Otherwise, those unemployment numbers risk becoming permanent. That's all we have time for today, Jim. So thanks again for a very lively discussion and see you next time. You have been listening to Chris Johns and Jim Power. We aim to provide an independent take on economics, politics and anything else that takes our fancy. Thank you very much for listening and we hope to have you on board again very soon.